this afternoon. Well, normally we would be in a psalm, this being a first Sunday of the month. This year I felt it appropriate for various different reasons for us to uh, continue with a focus on the Incarnation. Uh, the uh, Christmas season we often focus it on as December 25th is one day. Uh, traditionally, though, the Christmas season is actually a 12-day celebration, hence the song, The Twelve Days of Christmas, followed by the day after those 12 days is Epiphany, which is typically the, um, the focus then is on the uh, Magi who visited Jesus. And here we have Jesus being revealed to, there we have Jesus being revealed uh, to those Magi who were Gentiles. And so Epiphany, from the Greek word epiphaneo, uh, looks at Jesus, the revelation of who Jesus is. That said, today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 3. The focus will be verses 7 through 9, though we're going to read the whole chapter just so we can get the entirety of, con- of the context. Uh, this passage, verses 7 through 9, is on the various different um, reading guides for the church calendar, which we don't tie ourselves to, it's not necessary to tie ourselves to a church calendar, but there's many different readings for different seasons, and this is one of the readings for this day. Isaiah chapter 63, let's hear the entirety of the chapter. <clears throat> who is this who comes from Edom, in crimson garments from Bozrah? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red, and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? I have trod in the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in my anger, and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments, and stained all of my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, there was no one to uphold. So my my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness of the house of Israel, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became their savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. But they rebelled and grieved the whole, his Holy Spirit. Therefore he turned to their enemy, and he, tur- he turned to be their enemy, and himself fought against them. Then he remembered the days of old of Moses and his people. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert? They did not stumble. Their livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest, so, so you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. Look down from heaven and see from your holy and beautiful habitation, where are your zeal and your might? The stirring of your inner parts and your compassion are held back from me. For you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not acknowledge us. You, O Lord, are, are our father. Our redeemer from of old is your name. O Lord, why do you make us wander from your ways and harden our hearts so that we fear you not? Return for the sake of your servants, the tribes of your heritage. Your holy people held possession for a little while. Our adversaries have trampled down your sanctuary. We become like those over whom you have never ruled, like those who are not called by your name. Let us pray. Our Father, you've given us this, your word. And we pray that we would take that which we have heard and receive it as such, your word. 
for we have not just heard words that are on a page, but we have heard in these words your voice. And so we pray we would receive it as such. We ask, O Father, that you would take these words, plant them within us, that they might be ever more real to us, that they might guide us, that they might point us to Christ. We pray that our Lord Christ would be magnified in our midst today. And we pray, O Father, that you would nourish us in faith. We ask, O Lord, for this preacher, that you would chain him to the text of your word, that he might freely declare the truth, and to do so with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the, 17, in the 18th century, there was a prominent preacher in colonial America, very uh, well-known today, and eventually became well-known in his era, in which he preached a sermon, not from this passage, but he referenced this chapter in his sermon. Uh, the passage was based from De- the sermon was based on Deuteronomy, a text in Deuteronomy that said, "Their feet shall slip in due time." And this preacher, Jonathan Edwards, preached a sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And in that, he referenced what we have here in Isaiah 63 of the judgment of God in very picturesque terms pointed out the nature of the judgment. And yet, in that sermon, we also saw the likes of Isaiah 63, verses 7 through 9. For one thing I learned when I read through that sermon for the very first time, in a class that I took on Jonathan Edwards, was that sermon, while it emphasized, while it was talking about the grave judgment of God, it was dripping on every page with the grace and love of God that is in Christ Jesus, for that has been held out to us as a means to escape that judgment. And in our passage today, in verses 7 through 9, which will be the focus, speaks about in the midst of, on either side of this passage, We have judgment and God judging and we have the people of God crying out for God to come and rescue them. We have this bit of hope in there in verses 7 through 9 rooted in God's steadfast love and a command and or a statement that I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. When we... Uh, look at this passage when we hear this language of the steadfast love in verse 7. It's magnified by the preceding language of this judging act of God. We hear what's there in the, ver- in the, verse, in the first six verses of Isaiah chapter 63. And it might very well be shocking. One of my professors in seminary simply read from this passage in verses one through six and he got a call that night from an angry spouse saying how could you believe in a god who is so who is so judging how could you talk about that is he not angry anymore he said he's saying that asserting that god was not like that anymore that he had changed And, of course, he was shocked that the spouse of one of his students, and the spouse was actually a male, uh, was so angry about that. But the love of God is actually magnified by its contrast with this very picturesque and vivid terminology of the judgment of God in which we see him judging. And in that judgment was also the redemption it's spoken of in terms of first turn in of the first of the first person verse four for the day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come his redemption came through uh, <clears throat> through his act of deliverance and part of his act of deliverance is the act of crushing the enemies and he speaks of that crushing in the terms in such a way that his garments are stained with their blood Picture this. You have one walking over those whom he is judging and his garments are getting stained by what he is doing. It's very picturesque language. 
And it is in light of that that we have this, the Isaiah making the statement of, I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord. I will recount what he has done. I will recount his goodness towards me and toward us. We cannot and must not ever neglect the fact that the grace and mercy of God is magnified in light of the severe and absolute judgment of God. The very graciousness of His grace is set in light of how severe His judgment is, of how total and full His judgment is. This does not contradict His grace, but rather it magnifies His grace. For it shows that that which he is delivering his people from. He's delivering them from his judgment. And also, in so doing, he is bringing about vindication. Now, that's a big word. What does vindicate mean? It means showing that he was right all along. It means doing right by those who were wronged. And so he will judge those who are his enemies and the enemies of, pe- of his people. And the end of the day, that is part of the final redemption for his people. We could also see in this language of judgment quite possibly a bit of a Christological note. What is the Christological? That simply is making reference to Christ. And that in, in, the, in that <clears throat> the year of his redemption had come, for when God's wrath had been poured out upon him because of our sinfulness and his resurrection, he found his own. He found redemption according to his humanity. According to his divinity, he never needed redemption, but according to his humanity, he was redeemed, not because he was sinful, but because our sin was upon him. And so we now, in the light of that and after that, and we read afterwards and we can see that it recounts the history of Israel after their great deliverance in the Exodus and how they rebelled and over and over were brought back into right relation with God through Him bringing them to repentance. <clears throat> and so here he says to recount the steadfast love I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. What's to be recounted, first of all, is this word and this idea that is repeated in a number of different ways here in verse 7, his steadfast love, his goodness, his compassion, and once again repeating his steadfast love. What is it, first of all, to recount? It's another way of saying restate, to remember, to rehash. One thing that we as humans like to do is we like to tell stories of great things that have happened maybe in our lives or the lives of others. Everyone has different ways that they retell great events in order to reinforce and to strengthen understanding of different things. There's a song from the 80s in which talks about a, a fellow who had his great days of glory in the past. And he spends his time now just recounting those great days, but never doing anything based upon that. For those were his glory days. But this is not about simply recounting that which is in the past. This is about recounting what God has done in order that the people of God might be strengthened and nourished in what he has done and might therefore seek him and might look to him and rest upon him and trust him and turn from the things that the people of God need to turn. And so to recount is to rehash, to speak, to remember. When we look through the history of the First Testament, when we read the Psalms, when we read the prophets, when we read the writings, those are recounting of God's acts. 
They're recounting. We read the Psalms. In the Psalms, there's a lot of recounting what God has done, in particular with the Exodus. A lot of recounting and then saying, praise God for this and let us rest in Him. Let us trust Him. Let us seek Him. It is in order that the knowledge of God might be passed and the knowledge of God might be passed on. Part of recounting is for the purpose of passing on the truth of God to subsequent generations. One of the things that becomes very vital to healthy Christian life in the context of a church is ensuring that we are passing on the truth of God to the, to, to the subsequent generations and cannot simply assume the Christianity of those younger generations. We cannot simply just assume, well, they were born in our Christian household, so yeah, they're Christians. That's the temptation. But rather, the truth must be recounted and we must declare it and rehash it and rehearse it and speak it. And so he said, I will so do. And in so doing, there's encouragement and there is exhortation to seek the Lord who has loved them greatly. And what is it to be recounted as we stated? The steadfast love of the Lord. When we look through the scriptures, we can see many, many, many acts of God in his steadfast love and faithfulness to his people in spite of their faithlessness. The story of David and Goliath, the story of David and Goliath, the people of God, Israel was faithless. They're cowering in fear and God raised up David. Who went and conquered Goliath. Now, when we read that story, we're oftentimes tempted to place ourselves in the shoes of David. And then say, see, I'm David and I can beat Goliath. And we might go and do and Yeah, we beat that Goliath. And then we go face another Goliath. And we find our, metaphorically speaking, our arms and legs get cut off from underneath us. Rather, we have more in common with faithless Israel than we do with David in that story. For David there is a type of Christ who has come on our behalf. We have the steadfast love of God that is to be recounted. There's many acts which cannot be numbered. But take note of this word steadfast. This word steadfast. What do we hear when we hear the word steadfast? What we should hear is we should hear that it is something that doesn't go away. For those of you who've spent time in the Navy, when I look at the various different ships, pictures of ships, I'll see the, uh, see the little PT, PT boats, and then I'll see the destroyers, and then I'll see the carrier. And I'll look and say, I think that carrier is the one I want to call steadfast compared to the others. Because it appears to be one that cannot and will not be moved. This idea of giving thanks to the Lord for a steadfast love is one that appears throughout the scriptures. It's in the Psalter, many, many, many places. In Psalm 106.1, what we have here in Isaiah 63 reminds me of that. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? To think of all the many acts of the love of God in which he has done for his people would be nigh impossible to actually count. I mean, we might even have to take off our shoes to count it. Ten here. But even more than that, in order for us, in order for God's people to rest in Him and to persevere in Him, we must be assured and we must recount the steadfast love of the Lord, His goodness to us, His compassion to us, and the abundance of His steadfast love. Which We'll talk more about that in terms of its exact manifestation, in terms of how we should think. In the context of this passage, the immediate context, the particular act of steadfast love to which it is looking to which the Isaiah is looking to is the Exodus. The Exodus. We think of the story of Exodus 
which is not just merely a bedtime tale. It is not a bedtime tale at all. Rather, it is a historical event. And Israel had been enslaved for 400 years, as God said would happen. He had made promise to them that they would uh, inhabit the land that had been promised to the forefathers, and here they are enslaved. And he raised up Moses and sent Moses into Egypt to announce to Pharaoh, the time has come, let my people go. We know the story, I trust. We all know the story here. That they marched out from Egypt, they crossed the Red Sea after it, after it had been parted by a miraculous act of God, and Pharaoh's pursuing armies were then crushed under God's judgment. We might even say that the first part of Isaiah 63 may be referencing that as well, of the crushing of the Lord's and his people's enemies. But that is the monumental event in the life of Old Testament Israel to which all these things point, this exodus. And notice that what it also says here, the praises of the Lord. His steadfast love declares his praises. The purpose for which he carries out his love is that he might be praised that he might be exalted in his acts of love and in his acts of mercy and in acts of goodness. It is a declaration of his praise. It is a declaration of his glory. Speaking of the Exodus, Moses had asked the Lord to show him his glory. And the Lord said, I can't show you my glory, for you will die. But what what will happen is I will pass by you, and you shall see my back. And the Lord declared his glory to him, essentially declaring who he is, and thus declaring his praises, declaring his character, declaring his nature. And he said, I am the Lord, compassionate, compassionate. In verse 5 of chapter 34, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. He declared who he is. And in in that is his compassion and his loving kindness and his faithfulness, as well as his justice and his judgment and his wrath. He declared himself, thus declaring his praises. So when we are recounting the steadfast love of the Lord, the great things that he has done for us, we need not make a dichotomy and say that uh, and say, well, he did good things for me, but I can't rejoice in those because I because that's not glorifying to God. Rather, we need, need not make a dichotomy for those good things he's done for us in which we rejoice is singing the praises of God. It is singing the praises of God to recount the steadfast love of God, to remember it, to tell the story of his great act of deliverance for his people is truly singing his praises it is truly singing of his greatness and so in this monumental event in the life of israel to which everything most everything in the first testament looks back to that event as the monumental event in which we see the faithfulness of God, and we see his delivering power, of course, as we'll see in a little bit, that Exodus was a type that foreshadowed something greater. was a type that foreshadowed a greater Exodus, a greater deliverance. But the Exodus led to a covenant that was really truly rooted in do this and live for life in the land, which we'll talk about in a little bit. One one commentator, Raymond Ortland, he says of this, what this does is this stabilizes us as we wait for Christ to come with his final intervention. 
Isaiah invites us to look back to the faithful love of God thus far. We look back to his faithful love and that stabilizes us. In the midst of a shaking world, Israel, when we look at this passage, it's looking forward. It's a word written in the past from the standpoint of those to whom it is written. It was written to those who would be under exile. But Israel, had uh, the southern kingdom, had not yet been exiled. And it's written to this future people to recount the steadfast love of the Lord, even though they are no longer in the land of their fathers and of their forefathers. And that stabilizes us to recount the faithful love, the steadfast love of God. When we think of God's love as steadfast, another thing to think is this. My love for God, your love for God, our love for God is finite. God's love outlasts our love. It outlasts our love. Our love is imperfect. Very imperfect. But His love is over that. His love outlasts and cannot be fatigued. I like to refer to this, another way of referring to His steadfast love in this way. It is indefatigable. Indefatigable. It's one of my favorite words and also one of the hardest words, in my opinion, in the English language to pronounce. It basically means it cannot be fatigued. It is impossible to be fatigued, for it is steadfast. <clears throat> and, so, and then we see in verse 8, speaking of that act, for he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely, and he became their Savior. Speaking of an event in the history of the people of God in which he became their Savior, in which he acted on their behalf, speaking of, as we'll see again, the Exodus. Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 5, we see a recounting of God bringing Israel in the under the Mosaic Covenant, under the rule of God, according to the terms of that covenant. And we'll go ahead and back to verse 1. But this is the blessing with which Moses, the man of God, blessed the people of Israel before his death. He said, The Lord came from Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Parah. He came from the ten thousands of holy ones with flaming fire at his right hand. Yes, he loved his people. All his holy ones were in his hand, so they followed in your steps, receiving direction from you. When Moses commanded us a law as a possession for the assembly of Jacob, thus the Lord became king in Jeshurun. When the heads of the people were gathered, all the tribes of Israel together. Let Reuben live and not die, but let his men but let his men. So here we see there was a specific moment in history when Israel came under the covenant that he had made through Moses and he became their king and he was declared their savior. And he was done and it was done so through the Exodus. There, when they said those words, this we will do when the terms of the covenant were laid down, thus they entered under his special kingship. God is always ruling over everything. He is king over everything. Yet he entered into covenant with Israel in a unique way that he has not entered into, had not entered into with anybody else before or after. Now Israel served the purpose of bringing in Messiah. And the terms of that covenant are no longer in force and will never again be in force. It's an inferior covenant as we've been learning in the book of Hebrews. But yet, they were brought into a unique covenant and he became their king. And it was brought into by a saving act of God in which he, in space and time, became their savior. The one who said to Moses after his, if you read that in Exodus 3, when he's standing before the burning bush 
and God's and the burning bush, who is Yahweh, says to him, go to Pharaoh and say, let my people go, set my people free. He then goes to this almost comical debate with God saying, but who am I to do that? I'm not going to have the words. They will give you the words to speak. Don't worry about that. Well, I just I can't do it. I'm not going to be able to speak. Well, I'll send Aaron. He'll speak on your behalf. I'll give you the words. You give them to him and he'll speak to he'll speak to Pharaoh. And then he comes up with one and where he a last one said, well, so who am I going to say sent me? That's, you know, who am I going to what's your name? You're not going to tell me that, are you? He said, well, tell them I am that I am, which is a long form of his name, Yahweh. It states that he is what he is. Everything that he is, he always is. Everything that he is, he always is. And so he who said, I will bring you into this land, is still the one who, is still the one who will bring them into that land. For he does not change, because he is always all that he is. And so he acted on that and became their savior. And so recounting, in so doing, recounting that. We can see the recounting of that act of him becoming their savior. As I mentioned earlier throughout the Psalms, one of my favorites is Psalm 97, which says, The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice, let the many coastlands be glad. Clouds and thick darkness are all around him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and burns up his adversaries all around. His lightnings light up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord and before the Lord of all the earth. Those are all things speaking of a mountain shaking and all sorts of noise going on, which happened at Sinai. It's most likely making reference to that event. So we have this recounting of the steadfast love of God, recounting of the day of the time in which he became their savior. And we have that fleshed out in verse nine when he says in all their affliction, he was afflicted and the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Here we first of all see that the statement of of this act of God, that when they were afflicted, he was afflicted. This is a statement of his character and of his loving kindness. It is a statement in which God is revealing himself in terms that we understand. God does not change. God is is not affected by us in such a way that he is changed. This is a statement of his character. His people are in distress. And so according to his faithfulness, he's going to deliver them. He was afflicted is a way of saying that. We can hear that in the words of Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, where it says, And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings in this statement of his character and loving kindness he's showing that he's going to be faithful to his covenant and fulfill the promise to deliver them and make them a people in the land he would give them they were enslaved and in bondage for 400 years and the situation they were in was one that was not pleasing to god's character and so he according to his purposes that he had purposed from all eternity, delivered them according, as we see, fleshed out in the Exodus. And he acted in accordance with his steadfast love for his people. And so we see that in his compassion, he delivered them. In his faithfulness, he delivered them according to his promise. And then what do we see here? In their affliction, he was afflicted. And what is it that saved him? And this is where I wish to kind of focus on here. And the angel of his presence saved them. The angel of his presence saved them. 
What is it that saved them? The angel of his presence. What do we mean? Of, what do we mean by the angel of his presence? Is this speaking of Michael or Gabriel or a seraphim or a cherubim? No. This is more akin to when we see spoken of in the First Testament language of the, the angel of the Lord. Not just an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord, the messenger of the Lord. John Gill, an 18th century, 18th century pastor uh, who pastored the church that eventually became known as the New Park Street Pulpit, which eventually became known as, when they moved, as the, the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where Charles Spurgeon pastored for many years. John Gill said of this, not Michael, but the Messiah is here meant, the angel of the covenant, the angel which went before the Israelites in the wilderness. <clears throat> it is not an angel by nature, not a created being, not one by office being sent of God, as the word signifies on the errand of, but this is God himself on the errand and business of salvation, the angel of God's presence, because his face was seen in him, his name and nature and perfection were in him. He is the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. <clears throat> that is the very presence of God. When we look through the Old Testament or the First Testament, we see that the presence of God is a major motif or motive or idea that runs through, first, through the writings of the Old Testament. From the garden to the ark of the temple, to the ark to the temple. We can see this in the conversation that Moses had with God in the pillar of cloud. We can see the importance of the presence of God. Exodus chapter 33, verses 12 through 15. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. You've also found favor and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in, in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight? I and your people. Is it not not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from other, every other people on the face of the earth? You see, what is it that Moses desired? He said, if I do not have your presence, if you are not with me, this cannot and will not be done, for we need your presence. What is the Ark of the Covenant? What is the, to what does the Ark of the Covenant testify? The presence of God. For the Ark of the Covenant was in the Holy of Holies, which could only be entered in once a year by the high priest, because that was the very presence of God in the temple. Thus, what did the temple signify? This is where God is. This is where we can offer our sacrifices to God. This is where we can make our, <clears throat> our appeals and go to the priests for intercession. For this, is the, this shows us the presence of God. The very presence of God was a significant part of the Exodus. For to whom was Moses speaking at the burning of the bush? To whom was Abraham speaking during the Sodom saga, the Sodom and Gomorrah saga. Remember, the angel of the Lord was with them. And he had this conversation with the angel of the Lord saying, if there's this many righteous, will you spare? And it keeps going down and down and down and down and bargaining. And turns out there was no one. And so Sodom and Gomorrah were not to be spared. But there we have, we might say, a pre-incarnate Christ. To whom was Moses speaking? But God himself. Isaiah, in his very vision in the temple that we see in Isaiah chapter 6, to whom was he speaking but God? 
John chapter 12, verse 41, gives us an interpretation of that event. And it's not just an, it gives us commentary on event, I might say. And this is an inspired commentary. These are from the very, this is from the very mouth of God himself in John chapter 12. starting at the second half of verse 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them, though though he had done many, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they, they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. And Jesus speaking about, <clears throat> speaking about him, John saying this is about Jesus. Then in verse 41, he says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. He saw the glory of Christ. For Christ is the revelation of the Father. He is not the Father, but the Son is the revelation of the Father. We see in John, the one to whom he was speaking is the one who's the very word of God. The one to whom Moses was speaking is the one who's the very word of God. The one to whom Abraham was speaking is the one who's the very word of God. The one whom John says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Immediate context. This is talking about the Exodus. In which God was with them and his presence was there. When we see the angel of his presence, it could very well likely be referring to what is called, the word, this word Shekinah never appears in the Old Testament, but what's called his Shekinah glory in Exodus chapter 13, verses 20 to 22. And they went and they, and they moved on from Succoth and encamped at Etham and the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Who went before them in this pillar of cloud? The Lord. That was the angel of his presence. So without the presence of God among his people, they are lost. And we see that in terms of life in the land, he did depart from them for the covenant of do this and live rooted in law could not be kept by them. Just as we did not and now cannot keep that universal covenant under which all men have the condition to enter into God's eternal life, do this and live. Someone else has to do that so we can live. Someone else has to do that so we can live. And we see that in his deliverance, he carried them. He bore their weight. Isaiah is filled with all sorts of arguments against idolatry. And most of them have to do with, you have to carry your idols. You have to feed your idols. But have not I, the Lord, carried you? Have I not fed you? Have I not clothed you? And here, this is another... direct assault on the idols to which they were attempted to turn. And he showed them pity. And thus he was their strength. So we see that this is an act of love. And in recounting that exodus, it's recounting the loving kindness of God. Now, we must look at this as looking forward to something even greater. As we mentioned earlier, the exodus is a type that foreshadows something even greater. And that foreshadowing is the coming of Christ to save his people from their sin. When we look at our Lord Jesus Christ, who was brought into human history, born of a virgin, a number of different passages in the book of Isaiah speak of this coming of the servant of God. Speak of this one coming who's going to deliver them. And in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14 We have something that is stated there and then reiterated in the book of Matthew with regards to the identity of the one born of the Virgin, Jesus Christ. 
7, verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel in the Hebrew. Which simply put together is God is with us. What is it that is built into that name? In that we have in Christ God with us, God among us, the presence of God with us, the presence of God for us. God made flesh in the perfect union of the human nature to the divine nature. We see in John chapter 12 that it was the second person of the Trinity, as I mentioned earlier, that Isaiah saw in his vision. And that he saw the Son. And so thus, in Christ Jesus, we have this one who is the Emmanuel, the one who is God with us, the one who is everything that God is, because he is God. God made flesh. God dwelling among us. God entering into human history, becoming, as it were, in Jesus Christ, human, and entering into history and showing God's pity for us and redeeming us from our own rebellion and our own sinfulness. And he took upon himself that being crushed as the grapes, as the vineyard was being crushed. He was afflicted according to his humanity and by his presence he saved us by his presence he saves us he is truly emmanuel god with us when we think of christ we think of this god is with us his presence is with us his work is with us his person is with us god is present among us in jesus christ so thus if we are in christ what do we have we have what Moses, for what Moses longed, the presence of God. Because Christ is in us, the hope of glory. Christ is with us, and thus he has saved us. But furthermore, by his presence, he is saving us. That is spirit who is at work in us. Because we have Emmanuel, the one who is God with us, the one who is in the presence of God for us, we have Emmanuel. So we are being saved by his presence, being rescued from our sin because he has sent his spirit to work within us. And Christ is with us. He covers us. And furthermore, we will be saved by his presence. We will be saved because he will come for us. Because he will come and rescue us. Because he will come and rescue us by means of delivering us from all presence of sin and bringing judgment upon all that stands against God. He will deliver us. For he will rescue us and we shall, we shall see our final redemption. And we will also look upon him as if we might say, Our Lord, who has saved us, why is it that your garments are soaked in red? For he has judged his enemies and thus brought about full redemption and full, pre- full, full rescue. And human beings desire the presence of God, even those who deny the very existence of God. And we desire as his people in Christ Jesus, his presence. And oftentimes we seek it where it's really not to be found. We look for grand experiences, some sort of experience I can hold on to and say, I had this experience, so thus God's presence is with me. A quest for an illegitimate religious experience. Or maybe if I could finally go to this place. I love visiting famous sites in church history, missionary graves. But that's more of, that, that should be treated more as historical interest, but not as me finding the presence of God. Or we might seek to create extra biblical structures so we can have certainty of his presence. If we can just create all these structures and all these guards, then we can have his presence. Only those structures and guards are found nowhere in the scriptures. 
Where is he? Where is he? Where is God? As it was as asked later in Isaiah 63, where is he? He's right here. Emmanuel. If we're in Christ, we have the presence of God. Christ is present among us right here in our fellowship with each other. He is right here in the word read and preached. He is right here in our love and service to each other. Right here, present to our faith. We don't see him with these eyes, but we see him through the eyes of faith. He is present to our faith and the elements of what we'll be taking in a moment, the Lord's Supper. Right here, by faith in the living God in Christ Jesus. So how is God present among us? In Christ Jesus. If we have Christ, the angel of God's presence, has saved and is saving us and will save us. And so in closing, people, uh, dear beloved in Christ Jesus, like the people in Isaiah, we may say, where are you? Looking at the insanity of our own lives, the insanity of the world, which is always in a default state of insanity. And our own minds and hearts uh, have a resting heart rate of, uh, of, of chaos, a resting heart rate of trying to do things for ourselves and by ourselves. And we may say, where are you? And our Lord responds, I'm in Christ Jesus. And if you have him, I'm with you. Because you have the God with us. And so people of God, let us rejoice in the fact that we have the presence of God in Christ Jesus. And know that wherever we, we go in our deeds of service through faith in Christ, in our proclamation of the gospel, what are we bringing? We're bringing the presence of God. And so let us do those. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray and th- are thankful that you have saved us by your presence. The presence of God in Christ Jesus. That the one who lived the life that we could not live, the one who died the death that should have been ours, and the one who rose from the dead, and thus securing for us eternal redemption. And we ask, O oh Father, that you would strengthen us in these truths. Because Emmanuel was born of the virgin. Brought into human history as one of us. And we pray, Father, we could rest in this. And that we could live in this. And that we would speak with this. We pray these things, our Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.